as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, which uh, this uh, congregation has been studying since last fall, we have arrived at um, yet another uh, pretty um, R-rated passage, to be frank. Uh, it's an important passage. It's in, actually, the more I've studied it, the more important I understand it to be. Uh, but I want to just give a little um, parental advisory, so to speak, that, that uh, when, we, when we just come to the Bible and read it, it, the Bible deals with the messy parts of life. And uh, Genesis chapter 38 certainly does that. So I'm going to read it for us this morning. Now here a reading from the 38th chapter of Genesis. At that time, Judah left his brothers and stayed with an Adulamite man named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Judah acquired her as a wife and slept with her. She became pregnant and had a son. Judah named him Ur. She became pregnant again and had another son whom she named Onan. Then she had yet another son whom she named Shelah. She gave birth to him in Kazib. Judah acquired a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord killed him. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her, so that you may raise up a descendant for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be considered his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he wasted his emission on the ground so as not to give his brother a descendant. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord killed him too. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he thought, I don't want him to die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. After some time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. After Judah was consoled, he left for Timnah to visit his sheep shearers along with his friend Hira the Adulamite. Tamar was told, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil. She wrapped herself and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the way to Timnah. She did this because she saw that she had not been given to Shelah as a wife, even though he had now grown up. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. He turned aside to her along the road and said, Come, please, I want to sleep with you. He did not realize that it was his daughter-in-law. She asked, What will you give me so that you may sleep with me? He replied, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. She asked, Will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge should I give you? She replied, your seal, your cord, and the staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, then slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She left immediately, removed her veil, and put on her widow's clothes. Then Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite took, take, uh, then Judah, I'm sorry, had his friend Hira the Adulamite take a young goat to get back from uh, the woman, the items he had given in pledge. But Hira could not find her. He asked the men who were there, 
where is the cult prostitute who was at Inaim by the road? But they replied, there has been no cult prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I I couldn't find her. Moreover, the men of that place said, there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah said, let her keep the things for herself. Otherwise, we will appear to be dishonest. I did indeed send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. After three months, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has turned to prostitution, and as a result, she has become pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. While they were bringing her out, she sent word to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. Then she said, identify the one to whom the seal, the cord, and the staff belong. Judah recognized them and said, she is more upright than I am because I wouldn't give her to Shelah, my son. He was not physically intimate with her again. When it was time for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. While she was giving birth, one child put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his hand saying, this one came out first, but then he drew back his hand and his brother came out before him. She said, how you have broken out of the womb. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, the one who had the scarlet thread on his hand. He was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, as we're silent together, would you speak to us about this troubling passage? Lord, while we uh, come to this passage initially disturbed by the deaths of Judah's sons, their wickedness, the deceit, the prostitution, um, I believe having studied this that you have an incredibly important message of redemption for your people in this passage, and I pray that you would make that clear to us. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's start with a little game, shall we? Um, You know, break the dour, sour mood. Uh, I'm going to list some names of some men, and uh, you can think about what they have in common. Uh, Jim Baker, Bill Hybels, Ted Haggard, Tolian Chivijan, Carl Lentz, Clyde McDowell, Brian Houston, and Jimmy Swaggart. Does anyone have an idea what uh, what com- what all these guys have in common? They're all pastors. That's right. At least they were. Um, not all of them are alive uh, anymore. But of course, they are all pastors who's who were incredibly prominent men, uh, famous, and. Their ministry ended in uh, some type of sexual immorality, every one of them. Uh, and this is, uh, this is not uncommon for pastors, just as it's not uncommon for other human beings, that <laughs> uh, this is what happens. I have been ordained in our uh, denomination for 12 years. In that time, I can think of off the top of my head, in our little presbytery, that's our our region of the denomination, five different 
uh, pastors that I've known who have uh, had to leave their ministry after infidelity in their marriage. It is, um, it is something that's really important for others of us to say, except for the grace of God, there go I. These vices and temptations, they come in places of prominence, they come in community, they come in times of stress, they come in the search for power, they come in all sorts of ways. Uh, these guys that I listed are not um, worse than the innumerable, less famous uh, pastors and, and spiritual Christian leaders who have fallen in similar ways. They're, they're just better known. Um, they also, you could have answered, have so much in common with the family of Abraham, right? Every, every leader of the family from, the, from Abraham onward has had some type of um, moral failure, moral crisis. Abraham lied about his wife or, and, and took on his wife's maidservant, Hagar, they, they mistreated her, and then they sent her away. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had four sons, and of course, none of them reach the scandal on the level of Judah in our story today. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. He's probably the fourth oldest son, depending on what order different scholars think the sons are born in. Now, when we think about all of these guys that I've mentioned, all, all of these pastors that I've mentioned, the reality is many of them uh, handled it really poorly. When, the, you know, when, the, when they were exposed, when they were caught, they were quick to pass blame. They were quick to find ways that it was the church's fault or the woman's fault or whatever, somebody else's fault. They blamed their own marriages, uh, among other things. A few of them... This is the rare few, took responsibility, owned their mistakes, were genuinely contrite. Uh, and even one of the names that I listed, Clyde McDowell, went through a many years long process of, of restoration. Clyde, Clyde was a very prominent pastor here in Denver. Before the scene that we come on in Genesis chapter 38, Judah... Uh, became effectively the leader of his 12 brothers. That's what happened just before this. Now, the chapter before this is when most of the brothers rally together. They want to kill Joseph because Joseph is an arrogant pipsqueak who has dreams and boasts about them. And so they decide they want to kill him. Uh, one of the brothers says, don't kill him, throw him in a pit. Let's figure out what to do. And then Judah comes up with the idea that they all like and shows his leadership. He says, hey, win-win for us. If we sell him into slavery, we get rid of him and we get a little money in our pockets. Cha-ching, let's do that. They like Judah's plan. He becomes the leader of the family. It, it would make sense that, this, that the chapter going forward would focus on Judah. In fact, you would expect not to hear about Joseph again. That's what's happened in the past. When, when, um, when Ishmael, for example, was cast aside, sent away off into the wilderness, we barely hear about Ishmael after that. 
You would expect the story to track with the chosen family who's staying in the promised land and, and whoever the leader of the family is becomes the main character. Ah, it makes sense. If you were reading Genesis for the first time and didn't know that we were going to go back and focus on Joseph a lot more, you would totally understand that we've been, that we're going with Judah here. So Judah's become the leader. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he moves into the land of the Canaanites. This isn't what the leader of the family is supposed to do. There's already been warnings in Abraham's line that they're not supposed to intermarry and mix with the Canaanites. It's created family problems in the past. Judah and his buddy Hiram, who's just kind of like his hype man, I guess, like the guy that's just like, yeah, do it, Judah. You know, he's that guy. Um, you guys know, there's always a guy like that in a group of guys. That's Hiram in my imagination. Um, so Judah moves into the land of the Canaanites. Listen, the first people who are hearing this story are the Israelites who've been delivered from Egypt. They're in the wilderness and they're being given the law. And the law is complicated and, and got all of these details that, that don't quite make sense to us. But one of the things the law repeats in many different ways is don't intermarry with the Gentiles. Don't mix with them. Don't take on their gods. Now, to us, that may sound, I don't know, racist or xenophobic, but for this fledgling nation, God was setting aside a people for himself who he wanted to act completely different than the rest of the world. He was calling them to be distinct and intermarrying. You mix families together and tra traditions together. And so they've been given all of these warnings and now they're hearing this story about their ancestor Judah and it's like, it's a great illustration for them. This is what happens when you go and intermarry with the Canaanites. So they're getting a significant warning here. And Judah's foray into the Canaanite family has immediate disastrous results. It doesn't say in what way his sons, well, we know how uh, one way the Onan was wicked. We don't understand how Ur was wicked, but there's been a lot of wicked people in Genesis so far, right? No one has been immediately executed by God. This is the first one. And it just says it. So like, can we get a little theological explanation for this, please? I mean, Adam and Eve were told you'll die if you eat the fruit and they, they just had to leave the, prom the, the uh, Garden of Eden. My goodness, it's the first time. And yet, though it's an example of the dangers of mixing with the Canaanites, we start to discover that not all of the Canaanites are wicked. There's this woman, Tamar, who Judah finds for one of his sons, and she is the first in this, in this interesting thread of people that stretches through scripture. This group of Gentile women who effectively save the Israelites. Tamar's the first one. Others on that list are Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. These women who find themselves in very, generally very difficult situations, uh, scandalous situations, and have to be bold and shrewd to preserve the people of Israel. Tamar preserves the line of Judah, the line of kings. The irony in this story is 
so striking. Judah attempts to blend in with the Canaanites, and instead, it's a Canaanite who inspires him to return and be restored to his family. Tamar will come up much later in Scripture. In the, in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, she's the first of four women mentioned, and I just listed all of their names. These women that God used, the, the, these women that demonstrate that the storyline of God's people is messy. It's messy and broken. The, the coming of the anointed king is not a story of conquest and greatness and, and exemplary behavior. It's a story of redemption. That's what it is. So how do we understand Judah's behavior here? What's, this, what's the sin going on? What's the sin behind? I mean, you could take your pick. Uh, you know, is it disobedience and apathy towards God's word to Abraham, going someplace where he's not supposed to go? Is it lust or sexual immorality, visiting a, a woman he believes to be a prostitute? Notice that he's the one who thinks she's a prostitute. She just kind of goes with it. Uh, is it hypocrisy, that he's ready to kill Tamar for the very sin that he committed with her? What is it? I think underneath all of these is Judah's habit of blaming others for his problems. I know that sounds a little bit vanilla compared to these other things, but that at the root will lead to all sorts of behavior. In the previous chapter, you could read it as Judah blaming Joseph for Joseph's behavior, for making life hard for him and the brothers, for, for the fact that their father likes Joseph better than the rest of them. Judah blames Joseph and seeks to be rid of him. Though the way the story reads, we're told by the narrator that the sons are wicked. Guess who Judah blames for their death? It's clear, it's, it's, it's subtle, but it is clear in the text. He blames Tamar. He thinks Tamar is cursed. He thinks that whoever she marries will die. And so he lies to her. He tells her, okay, well, when my third son is of age, this is a cultural custom. When a woman is married, one of the sons, there's multiple brothers, and then the brother dies. It's the responsibility of the rest of the family to take care of her. This is the beginning of the, the idea of a kinsman redeemer, which will come up in the life of Ruth. But Judah blames Tamar for their deaths. And so he lies to Tamar. He promises his son to her so she won't be destitute and alienated and cursed in society, and then he leaves her in that place. She is ruined in her life. She is, culturally. And so she has to resort to a creative solution. The text does not judge her actions negatively. We're meant to understand that she is out of options. She's been used, abused, and rejected. I mean, gosh, the second son, he, he was just using her sexually. That's what he was doing. No, no child coming. She's a widow. And Judah is a widower when she disguises herself as, a, as apparently as a prostitute. But she barely needs to seduce him, right? She just waits by the road and he walks by. Like, that's on Judah. <laughs> 
So when her pregnancy begins to show, what does Judah do? He blames her again. In fact, he's ready to kill her for behavior that he himself committed. Blame is an incredibly addictive and corrosive force in our lives. Blame. Another way to talk about blame is to say the victim mentality, right? The victim mentality. The victim mentality would say, well, because my parents did this or because my boss did that, because my teacher said such and such, because wrong was done to me, I'm behaving in this way. It's not my fault. Now, don't get me wrong. People do wrong each other. I'm not saying being a victim is not a real thing, all right? People do hurt each other, oppress each other. Parents, you have incredible influence on your kids no matter what, whether you're harsh to them or tender, whether you're absent, whether you smother them, whether you're legalistic, whether you accept them, whether you're inconsistent, or whether you're living real life where you do all of those things, just like me. Your kids will be the result of that in one way or another. Much of the way you respond to life is because of the way your parents responded to life. You watched it, you experienced it, and now you're reacting to that. Just like they behave the way that they learned from their parents or their teachers or their influences in their life. I'm not saying that no one is a victim. But in this story, as a matter of fact, Tamar is a victim. Dinah was a victim in chapter 34. Joseph was a victim in chapter 37. Crimes are committed against them, and maybe crimes have been committed against you too. And acknowledging that and seeing that for what it is, that wrong has been done to you, is not the same thing as what I'm talking about with blame and the victim mentality, all right? What I'm talking about is leveraging the wrong that's been done to you in a man, into sort of a manipulative authority over others. That's what I'm talking about. Several years ago, I, was, I think it was during the, the like March on Wall Street, you know, the we are the 99 thing. And I was talking with a group of pastors about this. And we were just talking about like, this is interesting that this keeps happening in our society. And one of the pastors really insightfully said, the most powerful position in our society right now is the oppressed. Not the genuinely oppressed. You would never hear from them. But the person who has enough power to promote themselves as oppressed and convince others. If someone can show themselves to be oppressed, they can tie into this sort of new version of social Marxism that we have today that champions the rise of the oppressed and the working class, you know, to seize the means of production, to use Marx's words, to seize the power. Okay, maybe that's not you. I don't know if many of you are jumping into protests, but, but maybe you're fixated on your lazy coworkers who make it so hard for you to get much done at work. Maybe you have a really challenging relationship with one of your kids. Maybe one of your parents was negligent in your childhood and is now demanding in your adulthood. Maybe your marriage is hard, a struggle. How do you view that thing? 
do you find yourself saying, if this situation was different, then I'd be able to live the way I want. It's their fault. Blame is a great cover, by the way, if you're looking for one, for addictions. If it's somebody else's fault, you're powerful, you're powerless to the thing that's happening to you, you might as well medicate with something. Blame is when we point outward to someone else or something else as the source of our problem. Because the problem is out there, the solution must be out there too. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. Living a life of blame is a, so, a form of self-justification, actually. If I can point to others' responsibility for my behavior, I'm not so bad. They're the bad ones. If I can point to others who seem to be living worse than I am, well, I'm, I'm not so bad. Several of the pastors I listed at the start of this sermon, they were particularly outspoken about sexual immorality in their ministries. They were. Uh, they could point to others and perhaps feel that they weren't so bad. I was talking to a friend just yesterday about a particularly painful betrayal he experienced a few years ago. As he was describing this situation, I said, this person has, has made some pretty destructive choices. And he looked at me and said, it stunned me. He said, man, who, who am I to judge? In that moment, he, he wasn't just saying it's not okay to judge. He, he, he did not mean that her behavior was okay, that, he wasn't, that it wasn't wrong. He, he was saying he had a part to play in what happened in it. He had moved beyond blame. How can this happen? How can we move beyond blame? Since uh, 1964, the story of Mary Poppins has been a household name, a household story. Maybe not for all of you, but I certainly saw it many times as a kid. There's been a recent remake, so now many of the kids of our families have seen it as well. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that I really enjoyed it. My sisters made me watch it a lot to be to be honest, but if a movie's on, you watch it. So as a kid, I never really understood the real story of Mary Poppins. It actually wasn't until a more recent movie called Saving Mr. Banks came out. And Saving Mr. Banks is the story behind Mary Poppins' story. It talks about uh, the author, P.L. Travers, and she had written this set of uh, stories, and they were lovely stories. In fact, Mr. Walt Disney loved these stories. He read them to his kids. He loved them. And he begged Travers to let him make them into a movie. He wanted it to happen. And she refused again and again. And so they started getting to know each other. And, you know, Walt's a savvy guy, um, especially when Tom Hanks is playing him. And, um, and he starts to discern that there is something underneath the books for Travers. She had written the Poppins books as a reaction to her father. He was a fun-loving, tender, alcoholic, here today, gone tomorrow, usually absentee father. Mary Poppins was the imaginary stable presence that Travers' father could never be. She feared that Disney would turn Poppins silly, 
and lose the message. So Disney and his writers crafted the plot of Mary Poppins not actually around Mary, but around the children's father, Mr. Banks. Mr. Banks works for the bank, so he's well-named. He is a proper English banker. He has no time for his children, no warmth to them, no interest in them. And through Poppins' shrewd manipulation of him or influence over him, to say it nicer, he finds himself at a standoff with the bank on behalf of his kids, and he has to choose. In that moment of crisis, Mr. Banks' heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh, and he wants to go fly a kite with his kids. And that's what happens to Judah in this story. Now, Tamar is a kind of a strange version of Mary Poppins, if we're going to be forthright about it. Poppins is proper, has authority, panache, wit, and a magic bag. Uh, Tamar is a foreign woman married into a twisted family full of wicked men. But she has the smoking gun, and Judah's prince are on it. It's his ring, his staff, his cord. I don't think we can grasp this moment when a Jewish patriarch points at a young, single, adulterous, pregnant Gentile and says, she's righteous, I'm not. I, 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 you guys, this is an earthquake in Judah's mind and heart. This is Judah saying, let's go fly a kite. This is it. She is more righteous than me. She's righteous and I'm not. He's been accusing her of wickedness all along. When it, it was what was in his own heart that was wreaking havoc on his family. Guys, Judah's story, it is connected all over the Bible. It's remarkable. The more I looked for it, the more, I'm, I mean, I'm just amazed at this. It, it, it should make sense because Judah's line is going to be the line of kings. He's the ancestor of King David and the line of David. And of course, the ancestor of Jesus. But in this story, Judah first acts a lot like Lot, Abram's nephew, he acts like Esau and Lot when he moves into Canaan and marries a Canaanite woman. Tamar's struggle to have kids while not rooted in her own body. It echoes the story of Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel, wives in every generation of the chosen family who for some reason can't have kids. Judah's attempt to deceive Tamar smacks of Jacob's attempt to deceive Esau and again to deceive Laban. Judah's twin sons who are struggling for dominance in utero is just like his dad, Jacob, and his twin brother, Esau, who battle in the womb. Even one of, one of these twins comes out with a red cord tied on his wrist and one of, you know, Judah's uncle came out red, <laughs> even down to the color. Tamar's use of a goat to trap Judah it echoes Judah's use of a goat to deceive his dad and his dad's use of a goat to deceive his dad. Isn't it amazing? It was, and not only that, but as we go forward, this story, this story is a contrast to the good characters that we're going to meet. 
In just the next story, Joseph is going to be entrapped by a seductive woman. And she's going to use some of his stuff to trap him. But Judah gives in to temptation and Joseph doesn't. It's really Judah's distant descendant, Jesus, who will be his greatest foil. Judah uses and abuses the woman, the woman in his life and blames everyone else for his situation. Jesus tenderly relates to any scandalous woman he meets, especially. Even when it draws accusation to him and blame to him, he doesn't care. He, he receives them. He doesn't use and abuse them. He empowers them and blesses them and restores them. Jesus had this overarching message. This is how a couple of the Gospels summarize Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. How can we understand what he means? What does he mean by repent? I think the story of Judah tells us what he means. At the center of repentance is the moment when I own my own sin. When I take responsibility for it. When I say, like G.K. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? I am. I am. My mind drifts to the early church leader, the apostle Paul, who wrote things like, I'm the chief of sinners. He wrote things like, I do only what I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do are the things that I do. Christ came and died for sinners, Paul said, of whom I'm the worst. This, this moment in Judah's life is where he comes to terms with that. It's a turning point. Of course, the camera's going to leave Judah for a few minutes and, or for a few chapters and go to his younger brother, J Joseph, who's been banished into slavery in Egypt. But the next time that we meet Judah, Judah who sold his brother into slavery, what's he willing to do? A little preview. He's willing to sell himself into slavery to save his brothers. He's been transformed. When Tamar entrapped Judah, she used his staff, his seal, and his cord. These were symbols of family leadership. With Joseph gone, Judah had become the, the leader. And when he repented, she gave them back. She gave them back. At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, before he dies, is going to bless his sons, his 12 sons. And what he says to Judah, he tells Judah, you're going to be the father of the line of kings, yes. But here's how he tells him that. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That might be encouraging to Judah to know, hey, your line is going to lead the family. But imagine the sting that Judah felt. What is the symbol of rule and, and royalty and authority for Judah? It's his staff, the one that he gave to a prostitute, who, by the way, he treated more honorably than his daughter Tamar, not knowing they were two different, that not knowing they were the same person. The very symbols of his rule are the symbols of his shame, and he has to own them. And friends, this, this is why I know it can feel a little downer, but this is why we practice confession every week. Because that is the place that Jesus meets us. That's where we enter the kingdom. 
You only enter the kingdom by repentance, only. That's the only way. Here's a way to think of it. Repentance is turning around, and the kingdom of heaven has come all the way to you. It's right behind you. And the more you turn around, the more you enter it. Believer, you must own the symbol of shame and find your redemption in it too. Yes, that's your sin, but isn't it ultimately the staff, the cross of Jesus Christ? Before we can say, I have been crucified with Christ, we must admit, I have crucified Christ. It was me. Every act of self-justification, every act of blame and accusation was a hammer strike on the nails in Jesus' wrists. And yet his death, in his death, he is exposed on our behalf. He doesn't expose us. He is exposed on our behalf. When we repent, we find that the kingdom is at hand. What does God want for his people? He wants them to land at the place that Judah lands in this passage. She's righteous, not I. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lamb of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's our heart posture, friends. Jesus gathered around a table with a group of men who would either abandon him or betray him that night. And he offers himself to them. We do not receive this meal genuinely when we recognize our own righteousness. We do not receive this meal genuinely if we're blaming someone else for our problems. We receive it when we say, there is nothing in me that has earned this. And yet something about me, Jesus gave himself to bring me to him. Friends, on the very night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body. Take this and eat all of you in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a moment of repentance for us every time. And this is the doorway, friends, to the kingdom of heaven. It's right here. It's kind of like, a, this is off the top of my head, but the spoonful of sugar <laughs> helps the medicine go down. It opens up a new reality to us. Let's pray together. Father, hopefully I didn't just commit heresy. <laughs> But I come before you broken and owning my own sin, my own self-righteousness, my own proclivity to blame and accuse others when I'm embarrassed. And Lord, I just lay that before you now. And I pray that my brothers and sisters would do the same. Lord, we spend our lives justifying ourselves and blaming others all the time. Lord, let us relate with Judah in the moment as we walk to this table because you are righteous. 
not I. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.